When you know what you want for the future, you need the present to line up with your goals. UCF Online offers more than 100 fully online programs in healthcare, engineering, criminal justice, and more. So you can get to your future and beyond. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I am Tom Cavanaugh. And I am Kelvin Thompson. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Greetings, Kelvin Thompson. Greetings, Thomas B. Kavanaugh. Oh, yeah. You threw the B in there. That's well, good. Yeah. Appreciate that. That's my author handle mm-hmm. for my for my novels. Might as well throw a shameless plug in here. <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> well, Go out and buy Tom's books, would yeah, you? Yeah. For those who may be new to, to the to the podcast or maybe didn't know this, I've, I've written a few novels. They've done okay. And uh, if you like mystery private eye novels, they are under Thomas B. Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. So, check so you're out. not confused with anybody else. That's right. Yeah, there, there is a famous actor, Tom Cavanaugh, the Who? Can, Canadian actor. It's spelled exactly the same way. We're about the same age. He was um, on The Flash. He was in Ed, the TV series Ed. He was in the Yogi Bear movie. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know Ranger, his whole Ranger filmography. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if he's as conversant with your Vita as you are with his. I like to pretend that he is. Yeah. <laughs> so he has to, has to distance himself like, oh, yeah, I'm not Thomas B. Kavanaugh. <laughs> right. I wonder if he finds himself when he or finds me when he Googles himself. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's unlikely. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's multiverse madness. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe. Like it could be. It could yeah, be like but that. that is apropos of nothing today, Kelvin. Oh, that's the alternate name of our podcast in some <laughs> other universe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, apropos of nothing, uh, we'll we'll add that also to the band's mm. list, the list of yeah, like band the dulcet names. gurgles. Yeah, dulcet gurgles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. All right, so I heard some slurpage. <laughs> I'll try to do better. I just try to bring local color, you know. Yeah. And then, but then I have heard from at least one colleague who like, yeah, I don't know that I want to hear the slurpage. I'm like, oh dang it, another <laughs> another another minion in the. Tom fan club who like, I don't like to chew, hear chewing or yeah, drinking. I, I got a thing about that. Yeah. So not, mm-hmm. not a fan of chewing on in microphones. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, you'll never hear me doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Although the same person did say, I don't think Tom drinks the coffee. I, oh, I was watching the video. No, that's not and, true. And, and I, 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 he just, he just pretends. And I'm like, no, no, no. he drinks the coffee. Let me, he let drinks me the coffee. assure you the, the buzz I walk out of the studio with is, <laughs> is evidence of the coffee that I drink. <laughs> um, so we are drinking coffee. We are drinking coffee. And as a reminder to all of our listeners, this, this is a collegial conversation uh, over a shared cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And um, Kelvin, you always try to bring some thematically selected... <laughs> Uh, coffee, like a good coffee sommelier. Mm-hmm. Um, I try. And I imagine that uh, that today is no no exception. Well, we try. So we'll see. So you probably want to know what this one is. I do. So this one, Tom, is a single origin Colombia from Ligature Coffee right here in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I thought one of the impressive things about Ligature is they explicitly strive for transparency in the entire process and pricing in sourcing their coffee. They have a whole like web page on transparency by itself. But I will make three comments about this coffee. First, this coffee is from a legit high quality craft coffee roaster. Ligature is the real deal. Second, as with some other roasters, Ligature makes their coffee 
we might say more accessible to a wider customer base by selling through local cafes in addition to selling directly. And uh, this coffee came to us from XO Coffee Shop in Kissimmee, Florida. And finally, thirdly, this coffee was a gift from a friend. So free to me and free to you. Oh, wow. All right. Yes. So how's the coffee and how is the connection to today's episode? Um, the coffee's good, as always. You are an ex- excellent sommelier of, of the bean. Um, so it tastes good. And um, how is the connection? Mm-hmm. So um, you said you said maybe two things that, that jumped out to me. One was it was a gift from a friend. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing an interview with a, with a colleague mm-hmm. and friend today. That's true. That's true. Um, and that, um, what did you say? It, it makes it more accessible by going not yep. just to the direct, yep. but the also cafes. through, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so accessibility is mm-hmm. a theme that mm-hmm. we're gonna mm-hmm. that we're gonna touch on today. Mm-hmm. So those are those are two maybe hooks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, low and low and no cost uh, affects affordability. Mm. Okay. Uh, access is a thing, and this is a legit high quality coffee roaster. And those are three things that we do aspire to in our work. And uh, yes, in today's interview, our guest is going to talk about those three things among others. And plus, as a bonus. You know, I, I think he tries to pull the curtain back and bring some transparency to the process of higher education. So uh, we will be talking today about how efforts around access, affordability, and quality can be combined to improve higher education. Well, why don't we eliminate the suspense and I share who you did talk Please to. So, Kelvin, mm-hmm. you interviewed Dr. Stephen C. Airman mm-hmm. a while back. Uh, actually, it was in 2021. <laughs> this was the very end of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> this was another one that's been uh, on the shelf a little too long. We're trying to do better. Yeah. Dr. Airman, now technically retired, uh, is a former grant maker, consultant, and vice provost for teaching and learning at George Washington University. He was founding vice president of the Teaching, Learning, and Technology Group and director of the Flashlight Program for the Evaluation of Educational Uses of Technology. He has held positions with the Annenberg CPB Project and FIPSI. Mm-hmm. And uh, seasoned listeners may find it notable that Dr. Airman is the airman in the famous 1996 citation, Chickering and Airman, mm-hmm. which was a follow-up to the uh, maybe, arguably even more famous, 1987 citation of Chickering and Gamson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve's most recent book is Pursuing Quality, Access, and Affordability, A Field Guide to Improving Higher Education. And you guys spent some time talking about that. Um, Kelvin, is there anything you want to say about the interview before we jump in? Uh, maybe two quick things. Uh, one, <laughs> I, this is one of those dumb things. You know, I it wasn't until the very end of the interview where I heard um, Steve say his own last name that I realized for 20-something years I, I've been pronouncing his last name wrong in my head <laughs> and including on Mike. So it is Airman and not Ehrman, as I keep He's saying. Been too polite to point it That's out. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, oops, sorry. And uh, secondly, listeners, uh, we are sliding in. This, we don't do this very often, sliding into the actual podcast feed, a little five-minute bonus clip where Steve and I talk about a lot of the context around that uh, Chickering and Airman uh, paper. It was really fascinating. I, I liked it. But we didn't keep that in this interview. We, we made it separate. So you should go listen to that. Cool. All right. So through the magic of podcast time travel, here is your interview with Dr. Steve Airman. Hi, Steve. So happy to have you join us on TopCast today. 
Well, it's it's a a real treat for me. I've been listening to podcast to Topcast for years, uh, and I'm it's wonderful to find myself on it. Well, <laughs> Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, that's fantastic. That's 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 great. Thank you. High praise. High praise indeed. Um, as you know, and I know, but our listeners may not know, um, we've had occasion to interact, uh, you and me, you and some other colleagues here at UCF over a period of time uh, because of this project that you were working on that has finally seen the light of day, uh, your new book, uh, Pursuing, uh, would you still call it new? Pursuing Quality, Access, and Affordability, A Field Guide to Improving Higher Education. Uh, it, you nicely pulled UCF in as one of several case studies. So I am, I, I'm just so happy for you that that this has emerged into the into the world. So, a congratulations, and uh, and and b. I was wondering if you could just kind of talk for a moment about what what led you to that project. Well, it's interesting. The um, I've been seeing examples. I think going back at least to the '90s, where um, using let's say online interaction would enable both an increase in access and an improvement in quality. And I was also aware that most, a lot of people thought that was impossible. Uh, their feeling, the sort of knee-jerk feeling was, if you're trying to improve access, you must be lowering your standards one way or the other. Uh, and if you're trying to improve quality, and of course a lot of the um, early technology projects were about, uh, you know, really upping the pedagogical stakes, you know, simulations and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, other people's knee-jerk reaction would be, well, that's elitist, because uh, mm -hmm. who can afford computers? Who can afford this? Who, right. They wouldn't have had the background for that. Uh, then Carol Twigg came along with the, uh, her course redesign project mm -hmm. and was arguing that you could have both quality improvement and affordability improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess starting about 10 years ago, I was more often hearing people talk about quality and affordability and access. Uh, but if I tried to dig underneath it, they were three different agendas. Mm. You know, you've got your quality steps, then you come from faculty, you've got access steps, that's probably from staff, you've got affordability, well, that's budget makers. Um, mm -hmm. That just didn't seem right to me. It, by conceiving each of these things separately, they could really compete with each other for attention, competing with each other for resources. Uh, plus, I'd never heard an institution claim that they actually had improved quality and access and affordability. Right. And yet at the base of my mind was a conviction that uh, there should be a, a simple or a simple interrelated set of things that could be done, which would have all three benefits as a consequence of the one set of actions without saying, well, this element is specialized for this and that is specialized for that. Uh, I decided when I retired that I wanted to look into this. I could give myself the freedom now to, to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and happily for me, I went to a, um, a meeting at the University of Maryland where Tim Rennick of Georgia State University mm -hmm. came and he basically said, here's what we're doing now that's enabling us to improve quality and access and affordability, and here's the story of how that capacity developed. Mm 
uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, I'd just been sort of trying to imagine what it was I was looking for. uh, And suddenly Tim had described it. Um, Not that they were doing it the only way, but it was that idea of the story of how over the years, what was a more or less ordinary institution could develop the capacity to do this extraordinary thing was what the book should be uh, uh, developed around. And then I started thinking, well, let me see if I can find five or maybe six institutions that do this um, each in their own fashion, each emphasizing something the others might have missed um, so that together they would tell a more unified story about a strategy that almost any institution could use to begin moving in this direction. In fact, one satisfying thing about that was to realize that most institutions probably have already taken some steps in this direction. Mm-hmm. They just don't know it yet. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, and, I mean, what a, what a great uh, seizing of the opportunity of your retirement. You know, lesser individuals might be fishing or golfing or binge watching something yeah but <laughs> you're, you're you're out diving deep into multiple institutions and i, I know from just <laughs> uh interacting in your in your research process i know you 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 dove deeply <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we did, did it together um yeah. you and me and tom and, and some other folk at uh, central florida yeah yeah it was yeah, a lot of fun yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know that uh, the, the the resulting work reflects a lot of, of deep thought, and and, and a, it was not a cursory look. And I think you did. What is it? Is it six, five, six institutions six. that are in the case studies? Six. Yeah, which is which is great, uh, as you say that it's there's not one story. There's multiple stories, and you can pull out themes. Um, look, people should buy your book, right? And so listeners, please. Go buy Steve's book. Um, so we don't want to spoiler it too much, but having done the deep dive and having written the book and having released mm-hmm. the book, what are your takeaways? At least from at least from looking at six different institutions through that that those lenses of the of the threefold gains and considering quality and access and affordability, what do you walk away with? What do you, and, and what lessons do you have for all of us? Well, let me first say that five of them were, were similar to each other in an important mm. way, and one of them was different. Okay. The five that were similar include Central Florida, and okay. I think almost any listener to this um, podcast would uh, probably be at something like one of those five. Mm-hmm. So let me describe them first, and then I'll just mm-hmm. note yeah. briefly about why the sixth was different. Yeah. Um, All of them are using um, teaching and learning activities like what have been called high-impact practices Mm -hmm. um, and other forms of active and collaborative learning. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's been research for decades that that kind of approach to teaching and learning improves outcomes. Um, Starting about a dozen years ago, however, research began to come out that some of these things like learning communities, undergraduate research, capstone courses, service learning, and so on, um, not only improve quality for um, potentially everybody who's taking part, 
but are especially advantageous for students who in one way or another are starting behind. Uh, students from underserved groups whose education before college might not have been the best and so on, um, that they actually make greater gains and can potentially end up having graduation rates that are similar uh, to more privileged students from more privileged groups. What I first realized from listening to Tim Rennick talk was that if you've done those things, if you have higher graduation rates for everybody, well, that's at least a hint that the quality of learning has gone up. Um, you've got the equity of access, but students are now graduating faster. They're mm -hmm. graduating in higher numbers. Mm -hmm. um, attrition rates are down. All those things save money and time for students. Mm -hmm. um, and to some degree, they save money and time and earn money for institutions. Uh, Georgia State's a big place that something like uh, 25,000 undergraduates, uh, they gain two or three million dollars uh, of revenue annually for every percentage point increase in graduation rates. Hmm. So if you go from 50 to 51 percent, you've got two or three million dollars more of revenue coming in. Hmm. So uh, that's sort of the basic model. Step one. Step two is to recognize that these kinds of uh, changes in the fabric of teaching and learning, I don't mean you're going away from having courses or something like that, but uh, significant changes uh, from a pedagogy that's based on faculty explaining things to students mm -hmm. while students take notes. Right. Um, that kind of thing is hard to do at scale and to sustain unless there are also organizational changes. Right. And what I was seeing at all these institutions was that some of those organizational adaptations were inward facing, you know, faculty reward systems, um, mm -hmm. uh, a center like the Center for Distributed Learning uh, at uh, Central Florida. And others had to do with the way the institution interacted with its wider world. So, for example, if e-portfolios begin to be used as a way of um, communicating what it is that students are capable of and what they've actually achieved in a way that communicates more to employers, that's an interaction with the wider world, changing transcripts is. Recruiting students using a different image for the institution, recruiting faculty and staff, while perhaps boasting about some of the things the institution's already doing and talking about the promise of what could be coming next and why it would be a very exciting thing to be working for this university at this time. Those are all kinds of changes in the way that it a university or college interacts with its wider world or with its with its operating environment. And um, in retrospect, the organizational changes are just as important as the teaching and learning changes. And that was, I think, um, is counterintuitive for mm. a lot of folks. <laughs> if you want to improve education, you improve teaching. End of the, you know, end of sentence. You improve learning activities. That's, mm. that's it. No. Um, these two things have to co-evolve. And that's the third aspect of this, um, and the last I'll mention for the moment, uh, which is that this kind of ca this capacity, uh, these educational strategies, the organizational foundations, um, these interactions with the wider world were built up element by element over years. Um, the institutions that I was looking at 15 to 20 years 
to get to where they are now mm. um, in terms of really having an elaborate, what I call a constellation of educational strategies, organizational foundations, and mm. wider interactions, which all reinforce each other. It takes a long time. Uh, the exception to that is if you start a brand new institution and design it this way from scratch. Uh -huh. Is that a clue as to the nature of the sixth case study, or is there some other way that the, the, the sixth institution is quite different than the other five? Uh, good question. It, the sixth institution was created from scratch, but so was one of the five. Hmm. The difference is... You know, I mentioned that all of this is powered educationally by uh, forms of collaborative and other kinds of active learning. Um, five of the institutions are getting more and more out of student-student interactions of various sorts. Um, you know, peer critique of one another's work, student-facilitated small group work. Um, students working in teams on those service learning projects or in the capstone projects. Um, and that's very powerful. You know, if you have the model of, traditional model of one faculty member sitting in front of 50 or 100 students, and the main line of communication is faculty member broadcasting out students, which by the way was the first form of distance learning, uh, you know, broadcasting to the back row of the, of the room. Right. Uh, not much peer-to-peer uh, -peer interaction going on. Uh, but a, an institution like Central Florida, like the others that I studied, uh, can adopt pedagogies which involve more of this peer interaction and thereby make educational progress. Mm -hmm. The sixth institution, or the sixth program, I should say, um, is called College for, uh, College for America. It's a program of Southern New Hampshire University, and it's individualized. Right. So it is using project-based learning and problem-based learning, which are high-impact practices. Mm -hmm. um, but the interaction among learners is more social than it is academic. Um, uh, that is, it's not within the context of an assignment, let's say, that we're going to do together or we're competing against each other to do or... I'm advising you or whatever, the, the students are going along their own pathways at their own pace. Um, so there are other things about a competence-based program, which this is, um, that are their claim that this is how we're going to improve quality and access and affordability. Uh, so that's, that's the big difference, is that, is that an institutional pursuit of threefold gains, which is building on human interaction and especially peer-to-peer -peer and peer-to-near-peer -peer interaction, as five of them do? Or is it one which is sacrificing a lot of that peer-to-peer -peer in order to get the advantage of the student be able to go uh, at his or her own pace, uh, working on things that they're now ready to work on that are challenging enough to learn from, but not so challenging as to, uh, as to defeat them? That's interesting, um, and that makes that makes sense as you've um, eloquently articulated the the difference between the uh, the nature of your five institutional programs and the and the one and the um, just the the way that so many of us, as you say, uh, carry out our our teaching and learning activity it makes total sense. You know, it's been a delight, Steve, to have you. Uh, 
join us and, and share just some highlights from your book. Uh, for our listeners or watchers, again, I'll, I'll give you a little, a little plug here. The book is Pursuing Quality, Access, and Affordability, A Field Guide to Improving Higher Education. So thank you for that work. Thank you for this new work. And thank you for working even though technically you don't have to. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. Um, and again, my hat's off to you guys. What you've done at, uh, with Topcast and what Central Florida has done over the last 25 years has been remarkable. And uh, just to try to put this in one sentence, I think you've taken this idea of pursuing threefold gains to a whole nother level with the particular ways in which uh, you've used online. And that's one of the things that's uh, in this UCF chapter in my book. Well, well, thank you for those kind mark remarks and um, uh, regarding UCF. And what a great teaser for folks to go out and, and get the book and learn more about UCF and the other institutions. Thanks so much to, uh, for joining us today, Steve. Thank you, Calvin. I appreciate it. So, Calvin, that was your interview with Dr. Steve Ehrman. It was. He's a, he's a legit uh, experienced I guess, elder of the field at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's definitely got a lot of credibility in the mm -hmm. space. And uh, having you and I both participated in the research of his book, mm -hmm. um, he, he put a lot of time and effort into getting that right. Absolutely, he did. I was, if he did this the same way uh, everywhere else he did here, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's no wonder his work has been so widely cited, you yeah, know, because right. he, he's the real deal. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that struck me uh, as I listened to that was you know, his use of the framing of, of the Iron Triangle. I don't know mm -hmm. if he mentioned that word, that that term, but that's what he was talking mm -hmm. about with quality, mm -hmm. cost, and access. Right. And we talk about that a lot. We have yep. talked about it in previous uh, podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's something that that really resonates with with us here, mm -hmm. and uh, I was I was pleased to hear that that was kind of a central theme for Steve's book. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I, I didn't get into that differentiation with him, you know, in the conversation. Uh, I know, um, seeing an excerpt of his book, uh, I know he actually uses the phrase Iron Triangle in the book and does some framing. Uh, but I don't know if he takes it apart completely in the book or not, but I, I kind of wish now I had asked him a little bit, but I'm assuming something here based on some things he did say in the conversation. There seems to be a little bit of a whole versus some of the parts thing, you know, like I think, I think in his view, the threefold gains, there's a, there, there's a synergy there, right? And he certainly talked about like you could pursue those three things at an institutional level and, and get good benefit, but not have them really well coordinated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing that, that he mentioned that, um, that caught my attention was uh, his reference to uh, Dr. Carol Twigg mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in her National Center for Academic Transformation. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, besides being aware of her work, mm -hmm. um, it's also uh, worth pointing out that um, when, when Carol retired, mm -hmm. she, she sort of bequeathed her archives of her writings, mm -hmm. as well as the archive of the NCAT website mm -hmm. to uh, UCF. Mm -hmm. So we are now, um, you know, honored to be the custodians of that work. So if you, if you go to our website, you can access all of Carol Twigg's mm -hmm. writings and work and all of her case studies that she did through NCAT. That's really cool. Uh, you can, we'll put that a, a link 
in the show notes, but honestly, you could just Google National Center for Academic Transformation and you're going to go right to the yeah, page. Yeah. So it worked. No, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, any comment on the six institution thing? You know, just like, you know, I think it's interesting his point of there's not like one way to kind of pursue this kind of stuff. So let's look at it from, you know, the vantage point of six different institutions and they're very different kinds of institutions, despite, you know, Steve saying, well, five are the same and one's different. I mean, yeah. they all are different. Yeah, they are. Um, but I kind of get what he was saying. I mean, College for America was the different one, which <laughs> mm-hmm. is a spinoff of Southern New very Hampshire. Diff- very different. <laughs> Total competency-based model. It was associate's degrees. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's a really interesting model to, to look at if you're interested. Um, but, you know, the others are, are sort of, you know, you could make an argument that, that they're somewhat birds of a feather. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, he mentioned Georgia State and we're at mm-hmm. UCF and we're both in the book. Um you know, Georgia State hasn't achieved their improvement in outcomes by um, the kind of digital learning investments right. we've made. Right. They've been really into the analytics and advising and kind of intrusive kind yeah. of like, you know, student support. Yeah. Um, it's been it's been different paths to, to kind of cop, <laughs> co-opt Steve's um, yes. metaphor, yeah. um, but different paths to get to that same destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. That's right. And I was um, listening back to it. I I don't even remember this in the conversation when we actually had it, but I was struck by how Steve kept emphasizing um, student interaction, kind of the, you know, again, a kind of legit framing of of teaching and learning and like really holding a a high bar for that. But it's, you know, I think he, he kind of makes the point that a lot of the the gains, right, it, pedagogically, uh, in that context, are, are really about uh, interaction between and among students and faculty and so forth. Which again is why College for America stands out because right. it's you know it's an individualized yeah. you know kind of process. And I don't know if this. I mean, this is probably just pure coincidence, but it's interesting. You picked six institutions, and we were part of the uh, <laughs> making digital learning work. Um, report that was put together by Boston Consulting mm, Group, funded by yeah. uh, Gates Foundation and run through Arizona State. But there were six institutions that were profiled there as well. It's a very so, hopeful number. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It just yeah. has to maybe fit. But yeah. all right, Kelvin, as I as I see my mm-hmm. coffee winding down, mm-hmm. do you want to try to uh, give us the bottom line? I will, I, will, I will take a swing at it. So we might say that as higher education institutions continue to differentiate themselves and the ways they seek to serve students, studying unique approaches of others to solving challenges like affordability, access, and quality can be instructive and, as Steve says, can help us improve higher education. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thank him for his work there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this will be an important contribution to the field. Uh, so thanks to Steve. Thanks for including us mm-hmm. in, in the process and UCF in, in the book as a case study. Thank you for the coffee. You bet. Um, maybe I can be indulged with one quick plug slash reminder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, dear listener, did, did you know? That each episode of TopCast comes with its very own text transcript. I knew that. Yeah. (laughs) Along with a whole lot of other great resources out at the show notes. But speaking specifically of the transcripts, Mm -hmm. they're valuable for many purposes, including easily capturing and sharing an episode quote, because we are so quotable. Hint, hint, hint. At least our interviewees are. Yeah. Quote Steve. (laughs) Uh, Transcripts are linked from inside each episode's notes on your listening app or online at Mm topcast.online.ucf.edu. So, uh, until next time, 
for TopCast. I'm Tom. I am Kelvin. See ya.